Okay, you guys, here we go. She Runs Ultras, episode number 65. And today we're going to talk about pelvic floor health. I know it's a little weird and seems maybe like a divergence from what we normally talk about, but it's really quite an important topic for all runners, both men and women. So I'm not an expert in this field, but my friend Amanda is. So we sat down to talk about pelvic floor health, what it is, what it isn't, how you can get more of it, do you need more of it, and... Yeah, I'm really happy with how the episode came out. So without further ado, here's my friend Amanda of Amanda Joy Fitness. Okay, so you guys, today we're going to talk to my good friend Amanda, who is a pelvic floor specialist. Is that right? Can I say that? Pelvic floor specialist? I would say I'm a pregnancy and postpartum trainer, athletic trainer, which includes a lot of this pelvic health specialty. Um, I believe a pelvic health specialist is a a more medical term, I think. (laughs) See, I learned something new right off the bat. So uh, Amanda and I have been friends for a while. I follow her work on Instagram. Um, We're in in a business coaching group together. And so the other day I had a question from a client come up about pelvic floor health. And so I reached out to Amanda and we got to talking and I said, well, we should definitely like stop this conversation and have it on the podcast. So, <laughs> um, so tell us, like you gave us your little brief info, like, you know, the technical difference between what I said and what you actually do. So tell us like just a little bit about what you do, who you work with and all that jazz. Well, yeah, totally. So I'm a pelvic or a, pregnancy and postpartum athleticism coach, um, which is kind of a a personal trainer, athletic coach with this kind of specialty. That's the population that I generally work with, um, is pregnancy and postpartum people. Um, and I, you know, I got started in that. I was always kind of athletically inclined, but then I got started in that, um, once I had kids and started to experience some issues and symptoms that, traditional training wasn't really addressing. Um, I've had several pelvic floor physical therapists along the way. I'm now pregnant with my third. And, um, you know, it's, I've learned a, a lot from them and then expanded upon my own training, obviously, as you do, once you kind of get an interest in something. And noticed, a, you know, such a large intersection between a lot of like the mobility work that is prescribed and I know is like your vein. <laughs> you talk a lot about that in the strength. And then all the, also this like pelvic world, you know, this pelvic floor world and pelvic health world and how we, you know, can bring them together and kind of make these, empower these women to make really good decisions about their athleticism. Um, so the, you know, the conversation, you know, for me, um, I started training for some runs um, I started training for my first 10 miler and a marathon and a Ragnar relay race. And I was about a year postpartum, which is kind of outside of this common quote unquote window of, of what I, when I should have been experiencing symptoms, but I started having incontinence and really like pelvic soreness, um, extreme soreness, that hip soreness. And what is this? And really started to dig into what that could be. And it really came back to my delivery experience and kind of a lack of pelvic health um, postpartum care afterwards. 
So that's how I got started in it all. Um, and now I, you know, can help women navigate that, those issues. And what I love about this is that you're also a runner and that runner. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're a runner. You've done, you have a resume of running that you have done. And so I think that makes this all the more important for us to talk about because the question did come originally, the whole question that started all of this was from one of my clients and she was talking about, you know, running and sort of peeing her pants. And I don't feel at all uncomfortable saying that because I know so many (laughs) of us do it, especially in longer runs too. And so I want to kind of just like back up the conversation because we use the term pelvic floor, but I don't think that a lot of people fully understand exactly what that is, where that is. So can you kind of give us, this is like an audio anatomy lesson. So you don't have any visuals. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, you know, the pelvic, so we have our pelvis. If you think of a human pelvis, um, there's a rather large hole at the bottom of it. Right. And so what's keeping our intestines and all of our internal organs inside of that container is a network of muscles. And they're kind of, it's a, a basket of muscles that connects from one side to the other. And it's a system there. And in that system, uh, there's obviously holes for our excrements and for biological females, a vaginal opening. And so those muscles and how they work together keep everything inside of you. They're such an important set of muscles and they're so often overlooked and not even, not even talked about. and they're kind of right there, this junction between the upper body and the lower body. And so when we start paying attention to them, we very often find the connections to other parts in our bodies that can be addressed with some pelvic floor health. It's amazing. <laughs> so that's in a nutshell. So you, you use the word health. And so I guess maybe the next thing for us to talk about is like, how do we know when it's healthy air quotes and unhealthy air quotes? Like, how do we know the difference uh, aside from maybe some of the obvious ones? Like, is there signs that we should look yeah, for? Yeah, there's definitely, you know, when we talk about leaking, um, constipation is another one. Um, hemorrhoids can be a sign of some pelvic floor dysfunction or something to be addressed at the pelvic floor. Um, hip pain. A glute clenching, but then we get into some of the more the you know extremities. There's incre- there's some f- incredible fascial connection between the foot and the pelvic floor. So if you're experiencing foot pain, that can also be addressed at the pelvic floor or be stemming from some pelvic floor um, dysfunction. Neck migraines. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how does how is the foot just like top level? Like how is the foot connected in that way to the pelvic floor? Well, we see the bottom of the foot is relative to gravity in the same way the pelvic floor is, um, which is it's again, you know, it's working against gravity and with gravity, as opposed to our quad that is a you know horizontal in position. Um, so it's working against gravity. And with gravity, um, along with our even our diaphragm um, under the rib cage, and so it's it's that webbing and that response. Um, very often, you'll see people with very flat feet have not very much pelvic floor response or mobility. And when you have like very high arches, you can have a you you know 
a tight pelvic floor, something that's very held, and also not have a lot of mobility. Of course, these aren't perfect, systematic, you know, <laughs> like one equals the other. I don't want to give up the impression. But when you have that relationship, it's the same relationship to and from gravity um, or to and, you know, how, how it's supported the structure that it holds up. Um, and so, yeah, when you, we talk about running, right, we like lower leg, foot, you know, do all this stuff to your feet and ankles and, and you have a whole system of mus muscles in your pelvic floor that is responding and needs the same attention that you might be given the bottom of your foot. And it's also the same impact. You know, the same thing is happening when you go down on that foot, when you hit that stride, that same, um, you know, tension is distributed through your diaphragm, through the pelvic floor, through the feet. So you mentioned um, a couple of the initial kind of like symptoms of a, un, I will just say unhealthy pelvic floor. Are there other things? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, jaw clenching, neck pain. Um, like I think I might've mentioned migraines, um, set, a pain during sex. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can kind of not be thought of as a potential for pelvic floor intervention. And, you know, perhaps that's a better word, you know, pelvic floor intervention versus pelvic floor dysfunction, because sometimes just intervening at the pelvic floor can alleviate some of these problems that we're having, um, in addition to other things like your hip mobility and your internal rotation, and, <laughs> right? All of those things that your listeners are hearing and aware of, um, including some pelvic floor intervention along with those other things can make big differences. So I guess maybe the next question that sort of popped up in my, in my head was if I don't really have any of those symptoms, does that mean everything's okay? And I don't, shouldn't worry about training or like having some sort of intervention? Like, yeah, we have, I mean, I think you have to treat pelvic floor health just like you would hip health. I mean, if, if a client or if you, as a person, if you were to say like, oh, my hips don't hurt, so I'm not going to train them. Like, you know, as a, as a runner, those hips are taking wear and tear and that training them stacks the deck in your favor for athletic longevity and allowing you to keep running for as long as you can without pain. <laughs> so the pelvic floor is the same thing. <laughs> so just because you aren't experiencing symptoms doesn't mean that you can't stack the deck in your favor to prevent those symptoms in the future. Yeah, I think that's like a really important part about this too, because we talk about doing a lot of this stuff as a preventative, not necessarily as a reactive. And so this is one of those areas that, you know, at some point, it's going to be, you know, more prevalent than at other points. And especially if you've had kids, like, I can't tell you how many um, Facebook groups or just general like emails or comments from from other women that I've heard about, you know, having had kids and having pelvic floor issues. And, you know, a lot of it, just, it starts and I, I keep saying it, but a lot of it just starts as, you know, I don't know if this is TMI, but I like, pee myself sometimes when I run and I'm like, okay, you and everybody else, because I think at some point this is like the common factor that we all have. So yes. um, I'm, yes. I'm happy that <laughs> we can have somebody come on and sort of talk about this because it may be happening to some people and they're just like, oh, I don't know. I guess I just like, that's just something that's wrong with me. Like, I don't, I don't know what to, and I don't want to talk about it to anybody. Cause it's like weird and TMI and 
Oh, I was going to say, well, it's also in the running community, it can, it has historically also been like kind of a badge of honor, right? Like I ran so hard until I, right? Like in the lifting world too, like I did so many double unders until I peed myself, right? Like, and that narrative is changing, but it is definitely there. Um, And so, and there's some acceptance of that, of like, oh, this is just something that happens. This is just something that runners have. This is just something that happens when I get to 10 miles. Um, And so there is that kind of like acceptance narrative. Uh, You know, similarly, I think you would say like, oh, well, yeah, around mile 10, my knee just hurts. I just haven't been able to get over that threshold, right? Womp, womp. And like a normal run coach would say like, yes, we can. Let's do some of these accessory work to get you there. So that conversation can happen around the pelvic floor as well. That's good. Cause I, I, it's interesting. Cause I hadn't really even thought about that. Cause like we, as ultra runners definitely talk about, you know, having to go to the bathroom in weird places because, you know, when you're out on a 30 mile run, like there's not always going to be a bathroom. So like we just, in the woods. yeah. Cause we just accept like peeing in, in the woods and all that stuff. I had, I'm almost too far removed. So I started my career as a personal trainer. I'm almost so far removed from it now that I don't remember that particular instance that you're talking about, like doing so many double unders that you pee yourself. But I do, you know, sort of recall that phase (laughs) where it was like, I did such so many burpees that I passed out. It's like that, you know, that kind of badge of honor type shit. Um, (laughs) uh, So I can see how that, that sort of lines up with the pelvic floor stuff, but I don't subscribe. I don't want to subscribe to that. Like, I don't want that to be the badge. Like I would rather my badge of honor be associated with something else. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, exactly. So definitely when we think of this as kind of like prehab versus rehab, you know, doing some front loading, um, in order to, in order to keep us doing what we love for the longest amount of time possible, there's, you know, (sighs) there is, in running specifically, I know, and this isn't, you know, my expertise specifically, but there is training your gut, right? There are certain things and you practice with food and fuel and, you know, inter-race fueling, and you have to practice those things. Sometimes your gut responds <laughs> negatively. <laughs> Sometimes your gut, re- you know, and you, we can train that um, with our intake. Sometimes it can be a, a muscular pelvic floor intervention that can help that. So there is the conversation we hear about the fueling and the food beforehand and what my role is and what I would love to see more of. And this conversation as part of that is also including that pelvic floor training into those, those same conversations. So let's talk about some of that. Like I, we keep saying, you know, intervention or training, but how, like, how do we get started doing some of this stuff sort of on our own? And then the, the second part of that question is, you know, when do we need to see somebody like you? Like, when do we need to get involved at like the next steps? I think the, you know, basic starting block is breath work, which I know that you include in a lot of your conversations as well. Um, and, that's not a common thing that's always included in run training or ultra training is how are your breathing? What are your breathing mechanics? Breathing mechanics and pelvic floor operation is, are going to go hand in hand very, very regularly. Um, and a lot of what pelvic floor intervention is, co- is coordinating the pelvic floor system with the breath. 
So that's like 101. <laughs> we want to start somewhere. Let's start by including breath work in our training plans for runners. When we're looking at increasing a threshold, so if you're looking at running your first ultra, like I know you have your <laughs> runners doing, again, it's a great idea to include um, additional support, especially if you have some, if you are like a postpartum person. Um, if there's not indication that you might need that additional support, then including the breath work, including your hip uh, mobility drills and all that accessory work, I think is sufficient. If you have those extenuating circumstances like being postpartum or any kind of these dysfunctions or these kind of signals that might indicate some more specific pelvic floor work, then it's an opportunity to add in that extra, ex that additional expertise, I should say. So what you're talking about is kind of just doing, um, so to, to go back to the breathing aspect, getting a handle on real good, deep breathing. And I don't just mean like, you know, I'm going to use the term like crazy yoga breathing. But what I mean is, you know, getting a full, what I would call like a full and complete breath where you're your rib cage, your whole torso is expanding front, side, and back. Um, and then to, and doing that consistently rather than, again, what I would call like in some of my classes, like short and shallow, where it's basically the top third of your lungs, right? So I just want to sort of make the distinction for people. Okay. Yeah. So we could like, yeah, like those breathing mechanics, we can dive in a little bit. So you, I call it 360 breath, which is what you just described, which is the rib cage is opening in 360 degrees. Very often we notice um, posteriorly, posteriorly in the back, people don't tend to expand. There'll be chest breathers up on top of their rib cage. Um, and laterally is a hard thing for people to, to get. What happens, especially in postpartum, when we, our anatomy changes, a baby grows there, your rib cage changes. So when you aren't paying attention or have those breathing mechanics as a foundation, that can cause some problems. The diaphragm at the bottom of the rib cage and the pelvic floor work together. So as you inhale and the lungs fill, the diaphragm drops and the pelvic floor should drop and relax. And then as you exhale, the diaphragm pushes air up out of the lungs and the pelvic floor should lift and contract to support the core. Um, I'm using my hands a lot and I wish everyone could see me. <laughs> but but so I'm trying to to make it as descriptive as I can. Um, and so just that function of a pelvic floor that relaxes and then supports or contracts is is 101. And so what you find is that people do it in the opposite. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Or they or their pelvic floor just kind of stays in this heightened position or this mid contraction and doesn't really respond to the breath to drop and then contract and lift and drop and contract and lift. It's it's kind of stuck almost in this supportive state. And then, you know, what we what we see is it's contracted, right? It's not a it might not be a full contraction, but you might be existing at, I don't know, maybe a 30 to 50 percent. And then you go run and you're taxing it and you're asking more of it. It's already tired. That system's already tapped out. So you experiencing, you know, you experience things like leaking because it doesn't have a regular opportunity to relax and drop. I saw you posted on Instagram. I should pull it up because it was good. And I'm going to 
I'm hoping I'm getting it right. You posted a video or like it was a reel at one point of times when you should relax your pelvic floor. Oh, yes. <laughs> I, and it was like, I'm trying to find it because it was so good. It was like you in the kitchen, like was, am I right? Like you yes. were doing dishes or something. Like, and you were like, hair or something <laughs> like that. Yes. And that's the thing. Which I think is like so good. Well, that's the thing. A lot of these prehab and excessively work that we talk about, it doesn't have to be extra work. It doesn't have to be extra time on your mat or extra time in the weight room. It just has to be a little bit of mental energy, right? So yeah, like while I'm standing at the sink, I can think of what's my pelvic floor doing? What, what, you know, just like you would say, what are my shoulders doing? Am I holding tension in my shoulder or my jaw? Like I can relax. I can relax my pelvic floor right now. It's not under demand and load when I need it. When I go out for a run in a little bit, um, it'll be available to me. I got a good laugh out of that one. Cause I was like, Oh, that's such a good like reminder to people. And I do the same thing with um, my clients and talk when we talk about how to work in work in more training and I'm using air quotes now without having to, like you said, spend more time on your mat. And I'm like, um, someone was asking me the other day in my group, like, well, how would you work more foot and ankle stuff in there? And I'm like, well, when you brush your teeth, do some calf raises or toe switches, or like when you're waiting to waiting for your kids at the bus stop, like there's all sorts of tiny little opportunities. One client I talked to today, it's not, not, um, foot related, but she was like, I, I got, came home at the end of the day, put my comfy PJs on and sat down to watch TV and then realized that I hadn't done my core work. And then she was like, and then I just got down on the floor and like in my pajamas, like I didn't need to be in my workout clothes. Like I just did it, you know? And so I think people, sometimes the, we need to blur the lines between like my workout and these tiny opportunities to just inject some of this stuff. And so that's what I loved about the posts that you made. And that's, um, I have pelvic floor relaxation is probably another like what step 101 block that I would say like breath work and then that pelvic floor relaxation. Um, and it's not an easy thing for people to find. If you have them do, if, if any of your clients are doing toe switches, <laughs> You, they know the frustration of staring at their toes and willing them to move with all of your eyeballs and nothing happening. Oh, it's one of my favorite things to teach. That was, I remember being in FRC training, watching somebody move their toes and just, I didn't even know they moved that way. I didn't know them. I didn't know my toes could do that. They still can't, but I'm much better now than I much in the same way, people probably know, don't know that their pelvic floor moves either, right? Like, it's kind of not the easiest place to tap into. Um, and I'm not the expert here. Like, my the extent of my pelvic floor work stops really with breath work. And, like, we have a mutual friend in, in Julia. And, like, the work that Julia teaches about breath work. And, like, that's really sort of where my pelvic floor knowledge ends. So I like definitely, this is obviously an area that I need to work on too. So I'm like, Oh man, I want to come on the podcast. We can talk about it. <laughs> so then we can get to work. <laughs> yeah, I have resources on how to find relaxation in the pelvic floor. And it's definitely something that takes practice and is not something that is something common and something very often that People don't feel it. They don't feel it. They don't feel it. And then bam, 
oh, that's, I feel a drop. I, is that it? Is that the relaxation? And there's a couple different, you know, techniques that we can kind of talk about and cues that I use. And sometimes it's just, it'll come. You just got to keep, you know, waiting. Yeah. Which is kind of the frustrating part with, with a lot of this stuff too. A lot of the mobility stuff, a lot of your pelvic floor stuff, it's not going to, like you might, with some of the mobility stuff, you might feel something happening because, you know, for instance, doing a hip car, a hip circle, like you might feel the stretch, the sensation, the line of tension, but the, the real work comes over a longer period of time and with this repeated input. So the tricky part is with pelvic floor, that might not happen like right on the first, you know, or even second time it takes time. I like to compare, um, internal, well, I like to compare internal rotation of the hip and the pelvic floor because a lot of people think like, oh, I know what that is. Like I can do that. And then you put them in these positions and they're like, what was that? Because internal rotation is one of like the most undertrained positions, hip positions, um, I think. And people don't experience it. They don't know what it is. And it's weird when you do. And then it's empowering when you know and your hip can do that and you can control it and strengthen it. And it's very similar to pelvic floor mobility, that ability to relax it. And it's weird. And then suddenly it's such a useful skill in your athleticism. Yeah, for sure. I think hip hip internal rotation is another one that is tricky for a lot of people. And it it, um, it's one of those positions that we don't, like you said, we don't get a lot of. And so when I introduce it in some of my trainings and when I teach it live in class, you know, my, one of my, aside from toe switches, the other thing I love to do is put people in 90, 90 and have them try to, you know, manipulate their back leg and their front leg into internal rotation. And much in the same way, you're sending the message to your toes when you're trying to send the message to your hip, your femur to try to make that rotation happen. It's like the most frustrating for some people it's easy, but for a lot of people it's really hard because it's not an action and movement that we ask for a lot. And so it's encouraging for me to hear you say that so much of the pelvic floor mobility and health is tied to hip health as well. And so a lot of our listeners, my listeners have started to like do their daily shakedowns. They have some exposure to the hip stuff. And especially for our female runners, our women listening, getting a handle on pelvic floor too. Now, actually I have a question. Does this um, affect guys too? Like you're just, I was just going to say that. Yeah, totally. Everyone has a pelvic floor. Um, Everyone has a pelvic floor, these sets of muscles. There's some differences in our pelvis bone structure to facilitate birthing children over not. And obviously women or biological females have a vaginal opening. And so that's, but otherwise the muscles are very similar. They're there and they serve the same function, which is keeping our pelvis together and keeping our, our organs in there. Yeah. So everyone has a pelvic floor. The, the, the conversation has evolved in pregnancy and postpartum. It used to very much be like, if you've had kids, you just pee your pants. Sorry, that's the way it is. And so now we've started to talk about that, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. There's things we can do, et cetera, et cetera. Let's talk about, you know, 
how was labor and delivery? What scar tissue might you have? Was it a C-section versus a vaginal birth? Like all of these things matter. Let's have these conversations as trainers and coaches. This, you know, these are conversations that we can have with our clients. Um, and that's really encouraging within that population. Now we can continue that to start talking about like people who haven't, people who've never had kids or carried kids have pelvic floor dysfunction. <laughs> that happens. <laughs> That is so important too, because I think that, um, you know, a lot of, like you said, the conversation about pelvic floor health has just been directed towards women who've had kids. And so typically like the, the sort of side conversations that I might get are, are definitely from women who have had kids, but also women like me who haven't had kids that are kind of like, Oh, I know this isn't like, this can't be right. (laughs) You know, like if I'm peeing myself on a run like this can't be right. There has to be something, but they're kind of like, "Mm, I don't know, maybe it just is because I'm, you know, older or I'm like, I'm aging. And so stuff is going to just start happening that I don't have control over. But what you're saying is we do have control. We do have a lot of control over this and there can be preventative measures and interventions for specific issues. There are, um, you know, certainly from a trainer's perspective, Talking to your trainer is an amazing first stop. Unfortunately, many of us don't have expertise in this area, but hopefully our training um, includes knowledge about when to refer out and knowledge about when to refer other resources. And hopefully a coach or a trainer has those resources available if that's not a card that they hold in their deck specifically, just like they would have you know, somebody, they'd send somebody to a PT for something for their knee pain or their neck pain or their shoulder pain, right? Like hopefully our trainers and coaches, at least the ones that you're seeing, if you're seeing somebody who don't, doesn't have a list of resources, find a new one, <laughs> but hopefully they, they can refer out if they don't have that expertise. But, um, but yeah, this, you know, these, the trainer or the coach is a great first stop to have some of these conversations. And as the coach, initiating those conversations is crucial. Talking about, do you leak when you run? You know, asking those questions in a way, do you have vaginal pain? Like, do you, are, you know, do you experience constipation? Like those are all workout related things, even though it's can be a little awkward to, to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's probably the hangup for a lot of people is like, they think that the trainer or the coach is just there to help them like, put together a training plan, like tell me how many miles to run. And what I always tell my people is like, I guarantee you, you can't gross me out. You can't weird me out. Like, you know, you get to a certain point after you've been in not only like in the business, but also doing the thing that you're coaching for a long period of time. Like you've seen a lot. And if you haven't, that's okay. It just means that you need, you know, more time under your belt to like see all these things. So I never, I'm weirded out, grossed out, unnerved by stuff that people ask me. I'm always like, oh, okay, that's interesting. Tell me a little bit more about this. When does it happen? When doesn't it happen? How often? The whole nine yards. So that we can start to put it into the bigger picture of what's going on. Because even though you might think the two things have no business being together, they actually do. And especially since like in, in my case, we're talking about training your whole body to essentially survive uh, of a 50k or 100 miles or 200 miles like we need to look at the whole thing and not just like are you doing enough squats 
like, and how's your ankle like dorsiflexion? Like that's just not, you know, the conversation is bigger than that. (laughs) It's so much bigger and training plans are bigger than that. You know, something that I love about particularly your programs is the inclusion of a lot of these other things. You know, I've had run plans that were just, it's three miles this day, it's five miles this day, it's, you know, a very generic strength kind of conversation. Are you working out elsewhere? Okay, good. Um, versus kind of some more, spe- yeah, really more specific needs that runners, you know, more specific things runners need. Um, more supportive work that runners need. My bicep curls may translate, but I can spend my time doing something that will translate a lot better. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. Yeah. And I think like that's been a common theme amongst all the people that I hear from and that come into the program is just like, I had a plan or I was winging it. And we, we talked to those people separately, (laughs) you know, I had a plan and it pretty much just said run X number of miles on this day. And I survived, but there has to be a better way. Like there has to be a a more comprehensive way to go about this because I cannot do that again. Like you're, that might work for a 5k that might work to PR a 5k even. Right. But if you want to do a marathon that might need to be different for your body. Not something that you randomly pull up on the internet. You may be able to get to a 10k. Like for me, it's somewhere between the half marathon and the marathon where I need very much specific pre-intervention in order to get me there. Um, and so that's where that kind of individualized and more specific training, it just can't be just a list of miles and days to run. It just can't. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> you're, you're speaking my language, lady. <laughs> Preaching to the choir. <laughs> I know. <laughs> But this is part of it too. And like, you know, I've tried to make a concerted effort to, you know, I'm my own guinea pig for a lot of this stuff. And for a lot of my listeners too, I was just talking to somebody else today about the podcast and they were like, oh, I I love the podcast because what you share is so helpful. Like I have learned so much and I'm like, well, really it's my own personal experiment in like trying to do these things for myself and the stuff that I'm learning along the way. And I definitely, you know, have outside influence, like from my client that I, you know, asked you about. And I just look at it like gathering up tools to put into my toolbox. And, you know, I may not need it right now. I mean, I definitely need what you're talking about right now, but like, I may not need that specific thing right now, but I might down the line. And the more that I just read and research and the more people I talk to and the more, you know, podcast episodes I can sort of cultivate under that umbrella, the better off not only I will be, but also all of you guys too that listen to this. So it's tools in the toolbox. It's tools in our toolbox, cards in our deck, right? All of those analogies um, that are accessible to us um, if and should we need them. And especially if, you know, we, you know, you have a lot of these ultra runners stacking the deck in your favor, like I previously said, is key to that. You, you know, that's going to be what gets you through the race is how well, how well you've equipped the accessory systems because the primary systems are tired. They're done. (laughs) They get tired. So how well have you, what support have you provided 
your accessory systems to help the support, the support systems. What have you done? Um, so you can get through that, that, you know, 5k, that 10k on those, on the primary systems, but you need, you need the accessory systems. You need the extra gas can. I love it. I couldn't have, I, I swear I didn't pay her to say that because I couldn't have said it better to myself, myself. And like, this is what I tell like everybody all the time. It's just like, it's okay to do, you know, the surface level stuff, the plan that you downloaded off the internet, like that's, what's going to get you, you know, to the starting line and you might survive your first race, but like, there's so much more, there's always a deeper level. And at some point, especially when we talk about either new people to let's say like the 50 K distance, their first ultra or people that are trying to go for their farthest. So let's just say a hundred miles shit's going to break down. Like stuff is going to happen. And if you're only focused on, let's just say like the big things, the big muscles, your quads, your glutes, like your biceps, like that, you know, doing chest press and all the sort of like, you know, like the bodybuilding muscles, then that's fine. But when your hips start to go because they're so tired, what have you done to those auxiliary muscles to help support you so that as your run devolves to a shuffle, that you don't eventually face plant into the ground. Like that's the, that's the, that's the level of stuff we're talking about. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. And the pelvic floor, it's all in there, right? We talk about knees and ankles and hips and back, and it's just kind of like glossed over a lot of times. The pelvic floor physical therapist that I'm working with, we are discussing this kind of concept of very often when there's pain in the body, you analyze the joint above and the joint below and look at what's kind of going on to contribute to that connection. Um, and that's just a very broad, you know, starting point. But her her point as a pelvic floor physical therapist was that, you know, people will come in with knee pain and, you know, or hip pain. And they'll say, Oh, like, let's look at the knee. Let's look at the back and completely skip over this entire joint system at the pelvic floor. (laughs) It's right there. So those are your accessory muscles. Like the pelvic floor are your accessory hip muscles like that. I mean, that's, that's part of that whole system and it's not individual to itself. It's, it's part of the greater system to provide your pelvis support for movement. All I can think about right now is standing here is relaxing my pelvic floor. <laughs> Perfect. Good. So during your podcast, everyone relax your pelvic floor. You know, the other side of this. Oh, okay. Wherever you are. Right. Wherever you are. Drop your pelvic floor. You know, the other side of this is we've been, you know, told about Kegels and the contractions of the pelvic floor mm. and doing Kegels at stoplights, which is, you know, a misconception that I definitely wanted to address and bring up. A lot of people think that you need, they need strength in their pelvic floor, especially pregnancy and postpartum. Oh, I need to strengthen my pelvic floor. I need to train my pelvic floor for delivery. Farthest thing from the truth, your pelvic floor needs to relax and get out of the way so that baby can come out. Those muscles are tight. That's problematic. Um, Relaxing the pelvic floor might be what you need and not strength. You need more movement. You need more dynamic response rather than strengthening. You don't need more strength. You just need to be able to utilize the strength that you already have and relaxing. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. 
right? You just might need to be able to utilize the strength that you already have. Because when we talk about all this stuff, the automatic assumption is, well, if we're talking about it, it means that it's weak. Weak is bad. Strong is better. We must do more. Bingo. Yeah. We must do more. I need strength. If I have pain, this is, you know, a weakness. And it can be. And it can also be a lack of range or a miscoordination or, you know, something's uncoordinated in the system. So we don't, you know, the misconception is the pelvic floor needs to be strengthened. That's not always the case. Can it be like, yes, of course. And working on a range with relaxation is also beneficial. So if you don't know where you land on that spectrum, start with relaxation, finding mobility in your pelvic floor system, recognizing when you can relax and you, you, there's benefits there for everybody. That's good. Is there, are there any other misconceptions about the pelvic floor that you want to be sure that, that people hear and know about? That there's not, I mean, we've talked about, you know, there, there is stuff that we can do about them that, um, dysfunction isn't something that you have to live with. Leaking isn't normal. It's not a badge of honor. Um, a lot of times, especially with running, I, I had a really interesting conversation in IG live with a, with a, a different run, another run coach, not a long distance one, but, uh, there's a story about a mom who came back and ran her first race postpartum. And she pooped herself in the race. And she said, I did it on purpose. Um, you know, and it was almost like I did it, you know, I, cause she didn't want to stop to go to the bathroom to sacrifice her time. She didn't want to go into the porta potty to, you know, sacrifice a, a PR. And we have to talk about intention when those kind of symptoms come up and what the intention is behind it. So there's intentional leaking where you could control it, but you're opting to not choose something like your speed or your stride or your breath work. You're opting not to make manipulations to those. And so therefore it, you have release. There's also intention. That's like, you know, a layer, like taking off your gloves, right? Like I'll just be more comfortable if this happens, but I don't have to do this. Like I could keep this controlled for this race at this speed, at this tempo with this stride. I'll just be more comfortable if I shed this layer, right? That's a, those are two different types of intention. And especially when we're talking about running and all the manipulations that you can make with your breath and your stride and your speed, um, a lot of that can factor into um, you know, occurrences of using the bathroom during a race. So differentiating the two for you as an individual runner, like what is this urge? Is this something I can control by slowing down or changing my breath work or changing my stride? Or is this something I, I don't have control over at all? If that makes any sense. <laughs> it does make sense. And I think it's like, it brings up a good sort of extreme example that you give of the woman not wanting to spend the what could it have possibly taken three minutes maybe to like if that you know use the depending on the lines at the porta potties which at some races you know depending could be longer could be shorter so <clears throat> that does bring up a good question about how bad do you want it right like it was pretty you know it's pretty obvious that she wanted whatever that pr was 
miles, it's run either run three miles in zone two, run three miles worth of intervals, run three miles and have some hills in there. Like there needs to be intention in all of this, right down to the intention of working on the the tiny things like your pelvic floor, not that it's small in size, but you get the point, like in the hierarchies, typically this falls at the bottom, A, because most people don't even know that it's a thing, but B, we're so focused on the, you know, the bigger things, the bigger components that it makes sense for us to put this off last. But that kind of intention is really what's going to take your training to the next level. Yeah, definitely. And like the, you know, not fearing those moments of symptoms, right? Like this is a data point um, that we use, not fearing that threshold. Um, It's not something to avoid. That's the other thing. You know, she may have reached that point and realized, oh, this is my, this is my threshold. I can control it. But again, I'm going to be more comfortable if I don't. Okay. Like that, that's again, like that's her choice. That's a choice that she's made within the training. And hopefully she walks away going like, that's my threshold. And that becomes a data point for her to then train around. Um, it's, it's not something to fear. It was, it was funny because I'm a runner-ish, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, and this other run coach um, was saying that runners in her kind of community were like, what's the big deal? I've, we've bought, this all happens. Like I have to poop during races all the time. Like, So, you know, it was very, it was normal. You know, what was the headline? They were kind of like, where's the story? This happens to runners all the time. Um, But I think the story is about there's a threshold here and there's a movement threshold. And this was a data point. And how do we change? How do we, you know, construct training to then impact that threshold and that data point to, you know, towards your favor, towards that runner's favor? To go back to what you were saying, I have so many thoughts. To go back to what you were saying, I think the concept that you would have to to defecate or urinate during a run is definitely not a headline, especially when we get into ultras. We This is like universal. If you spend any time in the ultra community, there's lots of talk about peeing in the woods, best technique for this, like having, having to poop in the woods, like, you know, the stuff that you'll want to carry. I mean, for my upcoming race, I have to carry my own shovel and my own bags because I'll be in a place that if, that I, it's a like, leave no trace. So I have to, to deal with that. So there's a lot of conversation about that. And this is actually part and parcel of the training. One of the things that I think keeps people from doing some of these longer races is literally the idea that they will have to pee or poop in the woods and, um, and or in between porta potties at aid stations. And I feel for you, like I understand, but I also think that this is part of the training process. But the bigger point I was trying to get to is when you start or keep moving for prolonged periods of time, it's your body's response to want to just void and in order to be more efficient with your movement and make you more comfortable. Like that's an auxiliary in the same fashion. I'm off on a tangent now, but in the same fashion that when you run long, your digestion shuts down because your body's diverting energy to moving to pumping your arms and legs. Your body's also going to divert energy away from <clears throat> your excretive functions. And so it's going to want to get rid of what it's got. And then it might actually hold back 
what you put into it to your point earlier about constipation. So there's a lot of this stuff that might feel like TMI to talk about, but um, it's important to sort of like talk about it so that you can understand what's happening is normal. And now you just have to sort of figure out, could you benefit from some pelvic floor work or do you just need to carry some emodium with you and like have a good strategy to pee in the woods? Like this is, you know, all the sorts of things we have to talk about. <laughs> yeah. And all of those auxiliary systems and try, you know, evaluating these things with your coach. A lot of what I talk about is actually like movement analysis. Like what's my threshold? What's the data point? Um, what is, what are my capabilities? And then how do I train around that to reach my goal? What is that goal? Um, and so that might be dietary, nutritionally, hydrationally, rest and recuperation, mobility, accessory work, pelvic floor, <laughs> right? All of these are those, all of these are accessory um, systems that we're kind of, that we're kind of training and looking at in the plan and adjust, making those adjustments. Um, so you sent me this video a while ago that kind of walks people through some of the initial things. Is that something that we can share with these yes. guys? It's a, it's pelvic floor okay. mobility and it works on finding pelvic floor relaxation. One of the ways we do that is by actually utilizing internal and external rotation to cue the pelvic floor that it can relax because there's some other support systems in place. Ha ha ha, right? These are all working together. Our internal and external rotation helps support the pelvic floor when it needs to relax. <laughs> so, um, Awesome. So I would love to be able to put that link into the show notes, but do you have a quick URL that you can send people to? To sign up for that, you can go to amandajoyfitness.com backslash pelvic dash floor dash mobility. And I'll put that in the show notes too. So if you guys <clears throat> want to just scroll down and go to the link, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll make sure that people get over there. Cause that I think is a good primer for people, like a good place for them to start. And then obviously if they want to reach out to you and get some more coaching and some more assistance, they can do that. Cause I, my friends, I'm not a pelvic floor specialist. <laughs> this is why we have Amanda. <laughs> yes. And I also am not a specialist in running 50 K. So that's why I send people to you. <laughs> <laughs> and that again, just goes back to the bigger point that you made earlier about referring people out. So if you're working with someone who claims to be an expert in everything, yes, having an expert, a niche of expertise, and then a plethora of trusted advisors that surround, <laughs> surround yes, your coaching. Yes, yes for sure. <laughs> Well, I know you have to pop off to go get your little one. So I appreciate you coming to spend some time with us today and just kind of give us the primer on pelvic floor. And um, maybe we'll do a 2.0 episode once everybody has gone through and done the video. And then we can give them like the 2.0 next step type of thing. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I love to geek out about this stuff. Um, even just the pelvic floor stuff, how it relates to athleticism, but also just the, you know, the running component of it. It's, it's on, it's not on my radar. It is on my radar's radar to do a 50K. So. <laughs> Ooh, love it. Love it. Well, you know where I to do. come when it's time. I, <laughs> I got some resources for you. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, we should tell everybody this is your first podcast too, right? It is my first podcast. <laughs> I'm so excited about that. 
Oh my goodness. It's my first podcast and I'm so excited that it gets to be about geeking out about pelvic health and athleticism. It's just so cool. It's great. Yay. Well, we'll do it again sometime yeah. soon. Awesome. Thank you so much, Megan. Okay, well, I hope you guys found that episode helpful. I certainly did. Amanda is a fabulous coach, so make sure you go and download that free resource that she gave you guys. I will put the link into the show notes in case you were driving or you missed it and you want to go back and get it. If you're on my email list last week, you will have gotten an email from me talking about how I'm going to go hard the next couple of weeks slash months leading up to Tahoe 200. And I'm offering you guys the opportunity to sort of join me on this mission to dial in your training. So if you're not already on my email list, go to my website, megan-gould.com forward slash email to get on the list. Because like I said, I'm going to be offering a ton of tips and tricks and ways that you can start to dial in your training to get ready for your big scary goal. And this isn't necessarily for you if you're sort of like thinking about training, you know, like you have a goal, but you haven't signed up, you haven't taken any action. This is for people who are in it. Like they want the help, they want the tricks, they want to understand exactly what they need to know right now in order to get to their goal. So again, go to my website, Megan, M-E-G-H-A-N dash Gould, G-O-U-L-D.com forward slash emails to get on my list. And every week I'm going to be sending out a ton of helpful stuff, some of it actionable, some of it you have to think about, some questions, some ways to review your training plan, some things to, to add to your training plan, all the things you guys. Okay. So don't miss out on this opportunity because we are basically three months in to 2022. What have you accomplished? Right? Tough love with a side of love here, you guys. Let's get going. All right, you guys, that's all for this episode. Enjoy this beat and I'll see you all soon. Oh, 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 oh,